You are listening to Concrete Conversations, an informative podcast brought to you by the Concrete Masonry Association of Australia. We represent the concrete masonry and segmental paving manufacturers in Australia. Our podcast will discuss technical information and case studies with some special guests from our industry. I'm your host, Elizabeth McIntyre, the CEO of the Concrete Masonry Association of Australia. Andrew, welcome back. And I will say this because we had some problems the first time, not with the location or the architect, no. uh, just with the equipment. Few which tech issues. Few yeah. tech issues. So we're back and we're finally remembering how nice it was in Deep End Our House on that day and how beautiful the masonry work was around us. Mm. And I'm welcoming Andrew Hageman from AHA Architecture. I think I've put a new spin on that for you. You have. Now, Andrew, could you just start off a little bit by giving us a little bit of background about childhood, growing up? Okay, childhood. Um, I think I was um, always the sort of kid that spent a lot of time outside building things, which was quite weird. So used to make a lot of cubby houses and, and my dad's a builder so used to spend a lot of time on building sites when I was younger and you know playing in the Bundy pile and making things out of the timber that was lying around on site and you know just generally always around building so and then I kind of found out a lot later on when I was in my teen years that I had this unbeknownst to myself because my dad had emigrated to Australia, you know, in um, uh, basically in the in the 60s, so from Germany. And so I had all this family history in Germany that I didn't know about that, you know, we're all engineers and builders and, you know, architects. So there was this very long lineage that I wasn't aware of. So it, it kind of, I don't know, I think by the time I got to choosing what I was going to do as a career I, I kind of had a bit of a tech drawing background that I enjoyed and I wasn't really good at one thing I was good at lots of different things so you know like I think my best subjects were like English literature okay. and chemistry you know <laughs> <laughs> so you didn't sort of fall to more on the art side or the or the physics no, side no yeah. so you know I was never going to be an accountant or a lawyer or anything like that and I think I think because of the the drawing and the fact that I like like to you know create things that architecture seemed like a really good fit and I guess you know basically when I started you know, I pretty much knew from day one that it was the right choice so you know it, it was a wonderful the first few years were pretty amazing actually at Curtin University at that time because we had um, Bill Busfield and um, he invited a couple of crazy English guys over from the AA. Um, I found out about this, yes. Yeah, yeah, so John Andrews and Charlie Mann, who are absolute nutters. And, you know, one of the first projects we did, for example, is they put a map up of WA on the wall, put us all into groups and gave us a dart, made a stand, you know, 20 metres away and throw the dart at the map. And then at the end of that, said, right, that's where, in the cockney, right, that's where you're going on the weekend, right? Get a four-wheel drive, that's where you're driving. You know, and we're just oh looking at these God. guys going, you have any idea? Calgary. <laughs> how, how, how big WA is? You know, we, we ended up on a lake in the in the middle, uh, northeast of Dalwallany, Lake Moore, which is a really famous salt lake. So we ended up on that. You know, I don't know. It was a crazy project. And do you remember what the what was the purpose of that, that you go out and look at the... We were designing the Tower of Babel. So it was all about this kind of, you know, mythical architectural holy grails. And, you know, as a second year or first or second year student, you had absolutely no idea. 
what that was all about. So, you know, we, um, that project in particular, we didn't know what to do. So we were sleeping in a shearer shed in the middle of a salt lake with no one around us. We were about 30 k's from the nearest station. And the only thing we did is that one of the guys I was with, Andrew Forbes, he managed to bring a set of golf clubs. So we played golf on the salt lake for four days and videoed it. You know, we mapped out an 18-hole golf course because the thing was, was so big. The Tower of Babel. <laughs> Tower of Babel. Anyway, that, that comes into it later because we – anyway, but the funny thing is we got back to university and we had to present. We had nothing. We'd done no work. We basically played golf for four days. And um, so I sort of came up with this idea that we would, you know, rebadge it into this project about, you know, mapping out space and claiming kind of, you know, context and habitation, and you know, around this golf game. And uh, – I remember presenting it thinking we're either going to get an F here or we're going to romp it in. Mm-hmm. And I remember John Andrews distinctly, he was very quiet at the end of it for about five minutes and then he went, that is fucking brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it was that point I thought, I'm going to really enjoy this course <laughs> because it was just, you know, and it's only in hindsight now that I'm in practice and I'm an architect that you think, oh, you know, um, what sort of what sort of thing were they trying to teach you? And I think it was just that kind of open-minded creativity TV. and thinking laterally and, you know, all those sort of things. And I think if you're in the early years of architecture, that's kind of what you're trying to entrench in people. You don't want people thinking conservatively. No. Because that's not really going to lead to creative outcomes. Or, and you may get there anyway. Yeah. So, like, it didn't make sense at the time, but in hindsight now it makes a lot of sense because every time you approach a problem now, and inherently in an architectural practice, you're surrounded by constraint, you know, mm. just so much constraint, budgets, you know, clients, planners, uh, neighbours, you know, all those mm. sort of things. And it's, um, you know, it's it's really, I think Howard Raggett or Ian McDougall came to UWA once. I remember them giving a talk and I remember Ian McDougall talking about liberating constraint. I thought that's a really good phrase because it's quite appropriate for architecture. You know, take all the things that are givens, but at the end of the day, the architectural response has to kind of liberate all of those constraints and be its own thing. So, you know, I think it was a whole process over that, you know, five years. took me six years because I had a gap year. (laughs) But anyway, that whole process over the course, you kind of, you're growing as a person, but also Mm -hmm. as a thinker, I think, yeah. But Andrew, just thinking, just taking you back a little bit to growing up in Perth yeah. and just do you think that informed your idea of architecture differently being here in yeah, Western Australia? I think it did. And, again, it's a hindsight thing because I think at the time you don't realise it, but now I certainly do. I mean, our climate, for example, is so unique mm. and I've travelled to most of the capital cities in Australia, I've worked in some of them as well, and I think... Perth, you know, even when you go to Europe and you come back here, you're just gobsmacked by the the light is the, mm. is the main thing. You so know, bright. You step out of the plane, you get this immense horizon, this huge sky, and the intensity of the light is like nowhere else, mm. I think. And, you know, I don't think you're quite cognizant of that when you're a child except the fact that you played outdoors all the time. So that's another thing that informs my work now too is the fact that we actually don't reside in our buildings all that much. And West Australians love to get outside. They hate mm. cloudy, rainy days. And we gravitate to the exterior all mm. the time. And I'm sort of looking at those sort of things in, in the work at the moment. You know, I think Kirsten Thompson talks about interstitial space, that space between the interior and the exterior. And I think that 
is particularly relevant to WA's climate because as you're growing up, you realise you hover at that that barrier, you know, between the interior and the exterior all the time. Mm. And I think that's a really interesting driver for the work, mm. you know, that you, you know, you're almost dealing with the space between the walls in a way, mm. you know. So, yeah, growing up, I think the climate was the, the biggest thing that impacted on the way we were as kids because, you know, I used to go fishing with mates of mine so we'd ride down to the beach all the time. And, you know, we were very, even though we're quite spread out and not very dense city, you kind of always gravitated to the exterior. Yeah. And then I think with my parents, you know, we used to go camping and things all the time as well, but you'd be driving hundreds of kilometres. Yep. You know, it's not like Sydney or Melbourne where you go somewhere fantastic within an hour. We're talking like, you know, six, seven-hour drive to get to a place called Hopetown where you camp on the beach, you know. So that that experience, I think, you know, that's that's ingrained in me. I think I, I still have that, you know, now, now I'm a cyclist and a mountain biker, you know, I just can't, that's my release from... You're a mammal. I am. Well, yeah. I'm more a mountain biker than a mammal, so I'm wearing the baggy shorts more these oh, days okay. than the lycra, which is a way better look, Elizabeth, I might add. <laughs> so, Andrew, just talk to me a little bit. You mentioned you had a gap year. Where did you yeah. head? Did you go back to your roots in, in Germany? I did, but that was that was a lot earlier. No, the gap year was just a year um, spent kind of travelling a little bit with uh, some mates and also really it was kind of an interesting juncture in the course because i was a bit undecided about whether i wanted to do architecture at that point or not okay so it was it was sort of at the end of i think second year yeah second year uni so i've been through the charlie man john andrews experience which blew my mind but i wasn't quite sure if it would lead to a job (laughs) and you know being kind of 20 19 20 you you kind of want to go and see what else is out there so that's really what I did but the, the interesting thing is at the end of that year and, and the travel and the experiences I pretty much went no you know what I think I actually really want to be an architect so I better go back and knuckle down and you know I, I was always worried if I did that year I'd never go back so I never yeah, gave myself I almost luxury. didn't I, right. almost, I almost didn't but yeah. I think I was motivated you mm-hmm. know to kind of do third year and try and do really well mm. and then I mean my my best years at uni were my last two which is you know fourth and fifth year because I think I it, it had sort of sunk in by then you know and I think my skill level had improved and you know you can kind of see the end of the road because it's a long course you mm. know it's a real it's not one of those kind of degrees you think oh yeah I get a you know bachelor of business after three years it's like no it's like it's life-changing in a mm. way so you've got to be certain that that's what you want to do because you'd hate to get to the end of five or six years and go, actually, I don't think this is for me. Or the end of four. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, yeah, it's it's a long journey, mm. yeah, for sure. And so you finish uni, you get through, and then yeah. where do you work for there? Well, I did the kind of typical graduate thing. I stayed in Perth predominantly, but I, I, I ended up working with a few firms that were, you know, quite... Well, I had a, it's funny, one of my shortest jobs was with Bernard Sieber down in Fremantle and um, that was intense. That felt like I worked there for two years, but I was only there for four months. Doggies. Well, just uh, Bernard was very, I mean, he had this real craft to his architecture and he was very um, particular, you know, everything was manually drawn with lead pencil on drawing film and, you know, it was incredibly intense experience and but I picked up a lot about detailing mm. and things like that. So that left a big mark on me. Um, and I worked with a, a guy called Keith Tan, who I owe a big gratitude to because he taught me kind of craft of architecture and detailing skill. And 
the predominant kind of period I had was with um, Cox Architecture for about six years all up. So I worked in their Sydney and Brisbane offices as well. By that stage, they were doing a lot of museum work. So I was quite lucky as a young graduate to work on the WA Museum Link Building and then Museum of Tropical Queensland, uh, Batavia Museum in Geraldton and the Maritime Museum in Fremantle. So I had this really long... You almost became a museum expert. Yeah, yeah. And then I did the typical Arctic thing and I just went, you know what, don't want to do museums anymore. (laughs) You know, so I think I was always destined to head into my own practice eventually. Mm. So I did a 10-year stint, which I think is pretty typical, but then I started to think, you know, maybe I could, you know, make something of my own kind of career at this point. With all those museums, like what did, how did that inform the way you designed? Do you still? Yeah, okay. I I think that greater knowledge of the, um, the city and the urban fabric and, you know, kind of urban design and, you know, the broader ideas of what a city might be mm. had a huge impact because I think, you know, even now, now we do predominantly a lot of residential work, I still think I look at houses as being more than just places that we occupy and even more, more so now, you know, increasingly they're places where we, you know, we're working because we mm. have to. Yep. Um, and, you know, I think it was Donovan Hill that always said that the experiments with housing we were really critical to the work, they, the larger scale work that they ended up doing, <clears throat> you know, civic and, and public institutional work later in, their, in that practice's kind of career. So, yeah, I see that sort of side of it and the, the integration with how a city works and the ideas behind a city and urban culture is, was pretty critical. And you could directly transpose that back to smaller projects. You yes. know, there's no reason you can't have big ideas with a small project. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah, look, I'm, I'm glad I did it. I don't, mm. certainly don't uh, regret any of that time. Mm. You know, I met a lot of great people and went to a lot of great, great places and worked on some great projects. So really lucky. Just because you were in Queensland for a while there, what did you notice there? What was the most different thing, you know, obviously coming from Perth and WA? The humidity. (laughs) So, you know, I I was quite lucky where I was living. I was in in Spring Hill right across the road from Donovan Hill's office, which was awesome. So (laughs) every, you know, they would have, you know, drinks on a Friday afternoon and invariably I'd end up in there. And... You know, looking at their architecture, which, you know, had this really amazingly gutsy response to the Queensland kind of environment, a little bit more kind of uh, mannered and sculptured than some of the current work. But you can see where firms like Bokes and Peters have now had this kind of environmental influence on the idea of that Queenslander Mm. house in all their work. And, yeah, their climate is so different to ours. I think I nearly died when I arrived there in January, February, and the humidity was 122%. You know, it's just yeah. ridiculously humid. So, in a hero, I was thinking I'm a West Aussie and I'm used to heat, heat. but it's a different type it's of a heat. It's a different type of heat. And yep. you're just drenched all day. Like, you're just covered in sweat. And, you know, the amazing thing is you, you realise then how the architecture then in Queensland and Brisbane and the hinterlands around it adapts to that kind of different you know, environmental starting point, yeah. So you come back, you start your own practice. Yep. Is there a project there that you look back with fondness on? Uh, yeah, um, well, you probably know about it. So we, I think the, the house that kind of, I mean, you know, they always talk about that first critical project, I think, that you do. Mm. And 
I done I done a whole heap of you know typical architecture practice. You start with a whole heap of like smaller renovation projects where you're kind of thinking through a lot of ideas. You're actually cramming too many ideas into a very small project. But you want to show off all your you skills. do, yeah, with a <laughs> with a small budget usually as well. So, two thousand and well, I think I was approaching around two thousand thirteen. So I would have been in practice about five six years by then. So. And then I had a client, Megan, who came to me that had a fascination with Ivan Ivanov in Perth. And I mean, I knew Ivanov's work and I, and liked it, but you know, I hadn't looked at it too closely um, in a practice sense. Mm. And you know, she was in love with the Paganin House at that time, which I think sadly during, well, just actually after Concrete House was, was built, it, it burnt down. But at the time, they were looking to either buy that house or, or one of Ivanov's house. But the issue with the, those houses, they become incredibly rare and expensive mm. in Perth. So I sort of said to her, look, I realised they had this, this block in Wembley. They actually lived in the house next door as well. And I sort of said, look, why don't we try and do a new house for you here? It probably would be way cheaper and, and you know, we could just start from scratch and come up with something really interesting. So, you know, the first gesture with that house was to turn the whole thing sideways, you know, on the block. You had all these double-fronted Wembley cottages mm. and I just went, bugger that. There's nothing like it in this street. No. And to Cambridge Council's credit, it was amazing they approved it because it was out there, you know, it was a pretty different house. And we, we used the, the grey, you know, the Midland grey concrete blocks, probably the most, you know, basic material that you could find. But I guess I wasn't keen to replicate um, Ivanov's work, but I could see the, the sense in it in terms of using it as a, as a thermal mass material. And it does have sculptural qualities, but for me it was like, well, it's kind of it needs to perform first and needs to have sort of some sort of sense of what it's doing in terms of the spaces and how it's protecting them in terms of the environment. So that house is pretty critical. Mm. And, and, and since then, we've picked up a whole heap of other projects on the basis of that house, which... And I'm pretty sure that was one of the first Kevin Ball and Masonry uh, yeah. years. Well, it was weird because I think it, it was a bit like the tile one. You know, I don't think anyone was entering it. We had this weird little house. Midland Brick, who supplied the product, weren't even aware of the project. It's that perfect, you know, nice surprise thing, you know. So I thought, oh, yeah, we'll put it in Think Brick, see how we go. I think we were up against M3 Architecture, this amazing oh, yeah. building in yeah, Queensland. In Queensland. I've got no chance <coughs> against kids. that. Um, yeah. And there was other, you know, luminaries in there as well, like Taylor Hines and, and Mel Bright. Yeah. So I thought, I don't have a chance in hell here, <laughs> being from WA. Oh. And it did really well, you yes. know, like, and, and then Midland Brick, found out about it and they were enwrapped with it as well, obviously because we used their product. But, you know, it wasn't one of those overt things. We mm. were trying to promote the product, but I don't think they'd ever seen anything quite like it mm. in recent times. I mean, mm. obviously, Clopper's used it extensively. Sorry, not Clopper. Um, Ivanov's used it extensively. That's another influence of mine, actually, Brian Clopper, <laughs> but more on the brick side. But, yeah, I think, I think that house was the first one that mm. I kind of showed the thinking as well. Mm -hmm. So we did a whole heap of things on that house. Like the outdoor area is actually right out front of the house, not around the back yeah. where everyone puts it in Perth. You know, and it was, it, it meant to respond to the block and the environment and how they actually lived. Like I, I, I noticed that Mark, Megan and the kids used to spend their entire time in the front yard on the street, you mm -hmm. know, playing cricket and just talking to neighbours. And, you know, it was like, well, why would you put the major public space out the back? Out the back it doesn't yeah. make any sense. So... Mm -hmm. 
it kind of flipped it on its head, turned the plant sideways, which to me felt really obvious. Um, there was this beautiful jacaranda tree right in the middle of the block, which mm. was a very mature tree that we kept, and we literally wrapped the plant around that. So, and that served a purpose in it kind of created this this flanking plant that kind of went further north on the east and west tips. So in WA, that's really critical in summer because the sun tends to actually dip south of the of the of the sun arc yes. so you get this incredibly intense heat yep almost slightly southwest mm. you know between about 3 and 5 p.m in summer mm. so kind of tilting the ends of the building towards the north kind of helped us uh, deal with that uh, flanking sun mm. yeah yeah and since then i mean you've produced a lot of work that we've obviously kept close eye on and mm. even with deep end house the mm. way you've used masonry is not only diverse, but yeah. in a very beautiful way. Yeah. Why? Why masonry? Why brick and block? Oh, it's just it's the directness of it as well that I like. I mean, I think uh, coming from a building background with my dad, I, I kind of appreciate the the tradesman kind of input into every process. Like I, I love spending time on site. So, you know, there's something immediate about masonry. You know, you're not you're not then trying to cover it up or clad it or you know, it's got this kind of raw. It's low maintenance, you know. I mean, that's the other thing is that once it's up, it's up. You don't do anything to it. So you need incredibly good brick and block layers to, to use it. But it's a diverse product too, you know. You've got, you've got the thermal mass qualities. It's got a sculptural quality. It's got an architectural quality to it. It can do different things. So the, the concrete block we use is um, screening walls, breeze walls, thermal mass walls, load-bearing walls. You know, you can fill it with concrete. You know, so you can create a basement out of it. You know, so it's it's an amazingly diverse material, even though when you're looking at it as an individual thing, you think, oh, what can I do with that? You know, so it's that Louis Kahn thing, isn't it? You know, mm. and the brick wants to be something. In the case of me, it's the block wants to be something. <laughs> <laughs> and then you've used it just in some of the ways. You might just want to talk a little bit about how you've, I guess, harnessed that the... I guess the hit and miss screens, but yeah. how you've harnessed that in yeah. this current project. That's that, yeah. The current, the Deepwater House has had that kind of, um, interestingly, the plan on that one was derived from the fact that the north was oblique to the, to the side. So it was slightly diagonal to the, the long side of the, the property. So instantly we knew we were dealing with this kind of having to deal with the western sun, but would, it would end, bring in these kind of angled kind of sun diagrams that we knew we had to protect things like the the bedroom windows so we ended up with some really interesting external geometry related to how we set up the original site plan and and then it, it kind of then translated to well how do you still let the light through so they're doing a number of things they're, they're shielding the louver system so most of the breeze blocks have a, a ventilated louver system behind them that's good in two ways because it can actually give you the breeze but it also gives you security. Mm. So a lot of people don't, you know, a lot of people are quite cognizant these days of security. And the last thing you want to do is end up with like really heavy mesh screens on your windows. So, you know, by putting the blocks in front and we kind of pulled them forward of the facade as well to express them. You probably didn't notice that when you were there, but they kind of protrude from mm. the, the main line and the building line. And they're everywhere on all the louver systems. And then the breeze walls, uh, the sunscreen walls on the bedroom wings are angled, but we use a, a smaller 100 mil block, turn it on its end, because we wanted to bring that dappled light in as well. That's one thing I've picked up through doing these sort of buildings that 
when the sun hits it, you know, and you get that lovely, and it can even be like this time of year, deep in winter where you get long shadows, the, the interplay of the light on the interior is incredible. So, you know, suddenly these materials are transformed. You know, they just become something else. And I know James and his family are just clinging. He's constantly sending me photos of it <laughs> and videos and, you know, you name it. And he, I think he's... He's on this process of discovery now that he's moved yeah. in. I mean, I think you can always look at a floor plan and a model and, a, you know, you try and translate those things. But it's not until you actually move into the thing and experience it that you start to realise what the transformative qualities of architecture and what it can do. And yeah. also I think because you've mentioned, you know, the light is so strong, to be able to soften it and filter it yeah. in a natural way. Yeah, and I'm mm. constantly experimenting with that and I guess I'm using masonry as a way of doing it. So it's not decorative. I, I think if I was doing it purely for decorative reasons, you know, I, I should be shot really. <laughs> um, but it's, you know, I'm constantly experimenting with apertures and what sort of blocks we can use and how we might use them. But it, but also it still needs to look integrated into the whole design. I, you know, the last thing you want is to look like it's a bunch of elements that have been stuck to the outside yep. of the building. So you don't want your whole house to look like a louver, you know. <laughs> I mean, it, it needs to have some beauty to yes. it as well. So it's yeah. that age-old thing that you constantly trying to refine that craft and look i reckon i've only just started getting going with it to be honest so yeah. you know i've done i think we've done four or five houses now in that vein mm -hmm. and they're all very different and they all respond to their sites differently especially the site planning so yeah it's it's interesting yeah. no i think you're doing it beautifully and it is interesting when we talk about you know passive design i yeah. mean it's all very well to say oh well, the house should face this side yeah. but you don't get that choice, you know, like no. you, you, unfortunately the driveway has to come in yeah. somewhere. Yeah, and you look, know. most clients don't have the budget to spend huge money on mechanical systems on yes. their house. So yeah. I think all architects, any designer really should be aiming to have as much passive solar design in their house as possible because it comes, the way I see it, it comes with the fabric of the house. So mm. all the materials that you would normally use on any house you should be able to use in a way where, you know, you're ticking all those boxes of the environmental side. You have to do it. I just think that it's, it's an absolute mandate, you know. It's criminal not to. So, you know, I think I think that's one thing I always try to do is get as much of that in mm. without the client really having this perception that they're paying extra for it. So mm. that's really, really critical. And then, look, you get some clients like James on Deepwater House has gone that step further and he, we've been looking at, you know, solar arrays, battery storage. So we've got... Uh, car charging points in the garage um, you know he's sort of looking at the future because it's a it's a it's a long-term view they're taking to the house we're about to just start monitoring the energy consumption for the next six months to see how the house is performing so we're doing okay. a bit of a, a poe a post occupancy kind of evaluation of the environmental systems because i'm keen to know how it's working you yes. know? And i've always I've also asked them kind of you know, anecdotally, as I've been there over the last few weeks, you know, how's it going and how are you finding the thermal comfort? And, you know, that's that's one side of it, but mm -hmm. then there's the, the kind of the technical data that you need to collect as well. So I'm keen to know. And you know, yeah. where do you see, I mean, in terms of where design is going and the architect's role, what do you see the challenges for the next 10 to 20 years? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I, I would have thought with the onset of, you know, COVID and the way all our lives have been disrupted that we would see more, a bit more navel-gazing, I guess, mm -hmm. about how we live, how we work. And, and I'm, I'm still hopeful that that will come 
into our lives a bit more because I think we need to be inherently more flexible now than we ever were. You know, I think we all had this, you know, idea you live in the suburbs, you drive into an office building and, you know, you, you go up 30 storeys and look at the river and then you go back down the car and you drive. You know, that sort of that thing is quite entrenched in Perth, but I think that's changed. Mm-hmm. And even with these current lockdowns, I think people are starting to think, well, hang on, you know, and the East Coast is the same. People are working from home, they're working remotely, we need that flexibility. You know, our, our houses, for example, are more than just houses where we sleep. They're now childcare centres, office buildings. You know, it's quite broad. So mm-hmm. I find that, and multi-generational, they need to cater for the fact that kids aren't leaving home because of housing affordability. You might have older generations coming back into the mm-hmm. family home. You know, all those things. I mean, for an architect, that's just a goldmine. It's like, you know, gee, take a brief and even a client's brief and say, well, hang on, what if, what if, what if? And Mm -hmm. I'm I'm a big believer in asking that question a lot Mm -hmm. uh, during the process with my clients is raising that query, you know, what if, what if we did this, what if we did that, you know? So because I think at the end of the day, the way that we inherently build and live and all those things are intertwined, so you, you have to kind of, you know, push the push the norms, you know, break the status quo and, mm. and sort of look at what new forms. I'm, I'm a big believer in typology, you know, exploring different typologies for housing. So it may not be that overt in some of my houses because they seem to, you know, allow the occupants to live quite easily, but that's mm. part of the success. Like you, you've got to achieve that as well mm. whilst you're experimenting. Yes. <laughs> well, Andrew, it's been such a joyful journey watching you and ever since that um, concrete house Mm. and I must say I've been so thrilled about how you've used masonry in such a beautiful way and I in this in deep end house the light and the way that it almost feels like you've put a sheen on that block and I will show some photos on Instagram about how their artwork looks like you've actually built the house for the artwork and it's just such a a subtle embellishment. That was a beautiful coincidence actually, the artwork. So I had no idea that the client James had had all this amazing art because he's originally from um, Malaysia. So he kind of, he had a very strong attitude to architecture right from the start. You know, you could tell he knew what he was talking about and he kind of cited, you know, Malaysian modernists and people like Bawa and, you know, I thought, wow, this is going to be a great project. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of, you know, and he was interested in landscape and I kind of had to push him a little bit on what Perth landscape meant. But, yeah, that was, you know, there were some beautiful moments like that when he brought in the artwork and he had these kind of like gilded gold frames on these amazing tapestries, you know. They almost look like they're sepia ink kind of images Mm. of kind of agricultural scenes, you know, in Malaysia. And, you know, he kind of said, oh, what do you think? You know, and he lent them up against the block wall and I was like... Seriously, these are amazing, you know. And, like, and the, you look at the um, the light, you know, like you said, they, they seem to like pop off, yes. the, off the walls and you know, it's hard to change the frame. And I'm like, no, no, not at all. Both pieces speak for themselves. Yeah, and yeah. they just they sat really comfortably with mm. the material palette. So that was that was lucky. <laughs> I, would, <laughs> I, mean, I would have just gone with that and said it was intentional. Yeah, I mean, you know, had it been, <laughs> had it been pop art, it might have, might, have, might have looked a little bit different, but yeah. it just, it just sat, it sat really well. And I think as they moved in and occupied the house and, you know, you start to see how they, how they live and, you know, you, you get a sense that it, it's all quite unified now. Mm-hmm. It has that kind of synergy to it where you, 
you know, you think, yeah, all right, I've ticked a few boxes on this one. So, mm. you know, but you're always constantly thinking what, what you could improve too. Mm. Like I'm just so critical of my own work. I, I tend to still pick holes in the things I would have done differently. So, you know, but that's kind of what you say. I think that's an architectural yeah, trait. It is. Yeah. yeah. So I'm saving that for the next project. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. thank you, Andrew, for all your support of the industry. Andrew, thank you. And thank you twice for doing this for oh, me. My pleasure. <laughs> If you have enjoyed this podcast, please follow, rate and review our podcast. We are always looking for ideas of what to talk about. If you have an idea of what you'd like to hear about, there's a link in our show notes to let us know.